Wherever you look in Norfolk, you see water. It's a blessing and sometimes a curse. How do we learn to live with the water that has made Norfolk so special? That is what this presentation is all about. The Netherlands has learned to live with water. Recently, representatives from both the Royal Netherlands Embassy and the Netherlands Central Planning Bureau visited Norfolk to talk about the cost-benefit analysis of flood and sea level rise protection and a lifestyle of living with water. Thank you very much for this opportunity to talk to you about uh, what I love to talk about, economics of water. Uh, I'm director of uh, the section in CPP. I'll talk about CPP later. Those are the three letters that uh, my bureau stands for. I'll talk a little bit about uh, <coughs> uh, projects and also a little bit about economics of it. And I have scheduled my talk around uh, these topics, a little overview of what Holland is like and how we've dealt with water and what we have, what we're up to. Then who is this CPB thing? Then cost-benefit analysis um, as a way to rationalize decision making. In Holland, a lot of decisions are made rational both in the government and towards the public through this instrument called cost-benefit analysis. And a little bit about the economics of flood management, current research, a lot of research is being done on both um, the engineering side and the statistical side and the economic side of it all. And then something about the way forward. This is um, a picture of Holland, actually two pictures of the Netherlands, uh, which give in a nutshell the overview of the issue at hand. On the left you see a picture of my country and the dark blue area, just 26% of the country is below sea level. If there were no dikes, there wouldn't be this either. So the story is that God made the world and we made Holland. Yeah. The light blue area is also 29% uh, or close to it. That's an area that's above sea level, but will actually be flooded or flood prone. And you see that a lot of it has to do with the rivers. And river and areas at this point also the main focus of our attention, not of our research. So in that sense, you'll see we have a lot in common. No, you think <coughs> that, uh, well, this looks like a bad place to live, below sea level, why would you live, want to live there? Well, we do. This is the area in Holland where we live. And most of the people live in this dark red area and also live in this dark blue area. We'd say, why? Well, water has been not only a problem in terms of flooding, but also been an enormous source of wealth. This area, in its location, close to Germany and the rest of the world, between these areas, has been a center of economic activity and made us the richest nation in the 17th century, maybe also the most powerful nation on earth. This area is tremendously valuable in terms of economics. So we invested a lot over the centuries to protect it. And that's what the economics of it all comes in. So we fought water basically throughout our history and have seen ups and downs. Uh, there was a big flood and then major land recuperations and going back and forth, as this battle was going back and forth. And the battle was mostly fought at a local area, uh, uh, region, local regions, for about a thousand years. The water boards in Holland were the first democratic institutions and they were centered around water, protecting the land from the water. And they were very powerful. They were democratic, but they were very powerful. And they were based on who owns, who pays, who decides. And, uh, but at some point, <coughs> the government grew bigger, central government grew bigger, and there were some major fl floods that the government decided, no, this is a national. And the most important one of those, or the most famous one, was the 1953 flood that led to 
this area, which is uh, a province uh, of our country, being underwater. Now, this had an enormous impact in Holland. Holland, always having fought with water and having such a big loss, made it a national priority to have this something be done about this. But an issue of uh, not only national emergency, but also an issue of never again. This was our never again moment. And many countries have never again moments. This is our never again moment. So we did something about it, and we, we decided to have nationally a set of legal standards of safety. Safety has become an issue in the Dutch Constitution. What is safety? So it's a constitutional right. And these areas have different levels of protection, and they're decided upon basically by economic arguments, how wealthy, how important is the land, what is there to be protected, and how much will it cost. And you have four regions with different levels of safety. This area is the most highly protected area, which has a one in 10,000 year probability of flooding. And this one, the next, and is the lowest area, is one in 2,000. Right. So these are very high protection levels. And, uh, we are serious about water management. So the Netherlands is safe, for now. Okay, most people in Holland think that the flood will never occur in terms of these national big things. We have floods, and they're mostly riverine floods, and as I said, it's the area of attention. But for now, the Netherlands is safe. But we need further investment. And the reason is a whole bunch of things. Rising wealth means that there's more to be protected, just from an economic point of view. Subsiding land, well, <laughs> that's what you have too, means that's harder to protect something where it dies. Climate change. We're very serious about climate change. Rising sea levels, subsiding land, more rainfall in the winter means that the rivers, which carry all this water towards Holland, and it all ends up in Holland, what are we going to do about it? And the problem with the rainfall in winter, together with the rising sea level, means that the water which is coming down from the Alps through Germany has no place to go, because the water is rising, so well it go. Well, it's not Holland. Another thing of climate change is drought in Holland's head. Actually, we'll suffer from drought if we don't do something about it. So drought and sea level change and rainfall, all these things come together as a joint program, a joint issue to be dealt with. That's why the economics of it all becomes also very fascinating and intricate. That's why we do a lot of research. Okay. So there are two major challenges that we face, and that's probably true for most government projects. First one is simply, well, simply, <laughs> is finding and planning the best solution combining engineering, economics, climate change experts. And this combining, we're serious about combining here. This cooperation has all become a very strong issue. We have to be, we have a climate by ourselves, but we work with other people, engineering firms, and we do our economics ourselves. So this is something we've pretty much covered. The second part is then, well, you have a great plan, but now, how do you get somebody to pay for it? How do you get many stakeholders, many layers of government, without many of them, as well as here as there, and a rather tax public. How do you get them to agree on that solution? These two challenges have been facing the Dutch history of fighting against water for like a thousand years. The current state is basically not dominated by two things. The fact that this is going so well and that this is actually going well too. The CPB is uh, called the Central Planning Bureau. Now we never do any central planning, but that doesn't matter. It's a name that is from history, so forget about that. It's CPB is a bureau. A bureau is independent. We are paid for by the government, we're independent, and we are an expert institute for a wide range of issues on economics, going from climate change to the budget to water to <laughs> uh, anything you want. 
We had a good start because Tinbergen, we were established after the war, Tinbergen got the first Nobel Prize in economics. He was also the first director and he started his institute. And he got us a lot of uh, good press, so to speak. And the nice thing about the current position of CPB is that not only are we an expert on a lot of issues, we are also well respected by most everybody as an independent something. If we say something, most likely people will say, well, it may not be right, but nobody else has a better answer. And as an example of that, we are entrusted, I would say, uh, basically we've been asked by all the political parties who are going to run in the next elections nationwide to analyze the economic effects of their proposals. We're going to publish them in a book before the election so that the voters will get an overview of the economic effects of all the issues and they all these are all the issues, including water, but budget, unemployment, incomes. And this is unique in the world. And this is an, not so much I want to promote this as an issue, but as an example of we are being trusted by most everybody, this left wing and right wing, everybody. Also, the quality of us is just basically, well, it's called best practice by MF and OECD, and we try to maintain that quality by outside reviews that we organize, international outside reviews. Now why is this important to this talk? Well, together with another tool, we had a major impact on rational decision making. Cost-benefit analysis. Basically, you get a cost, and you look at the benefits in the project, and see which, one, which side wins. If the benefits are bigger than the cost, you do it, otherwise you don't. That's very straightforward. But it's about difficult in practice, it's also more difficult to actually convince somebody else that you're right. And the cost-benefit analysis in Holland has become a really big thing. Uh, it really started after one big project. Most things happen after something really goes wrong. Okay. And what really goes wrong, went wrong here, the, the financial project, a, a railroad, became a financial disaster. Even though, of course, everybody thought it would be you know, fantastic. It was a financial disaster, and the government paid for it, so the government had financial disaster. So they decided we should have proper cost-benefit analysis. But what is proper? So they commissioned, or the Minister of Transportation commissioned the CPB, organization everybody trusted, to head a research project to write guidelines for how to make these things. So that everybody knows what's inside and what's not, what's counted and what's not counted. Right? And make it transparent. This is how we do things. This is how we decide what are the costs and what are the benefits and which side we're And also had a government ruling, all these big infrastructure projects have to be made, analyzed by CPB through this cost-benefit analysis, or we have to make a second opinion of the cost-benefit analysis somebody else does it. So we basically give an ex-ante verdict of what we think are the costs and the benefits of certain projects. And it had a large impact. All major proposals with a negative judgment, we thought the costs were higher than the impact, were canceled or postponed. All the projects with a neutral positive judgment went ahead. Well, that makes sense because the government was a proposal proposed in the first place. So if we take the idea, then they would suddenly do it. So this cost-benefit analysis and how it actually worked as a hurdle to stop projects that didn't go well, that we thought wouldn't go well. But on the other hand, since we don't trust it, if we say a project is a good idea, it will generally get clear sailing throughout all kinds of commissions, and most everybody will go behind it. So this has in, in effect on both sides. It has prevented a lot of projects that would be bad, but also promoted a lot of projects which were good. And that has applied to water. <coughs> Then, uh, with that background, let me go back to water and say something about uh, norms and, and economics and stuff like that. Norms. Um, one of the things we find, or we found, and we still find, is that if you want to explain something to the public, make sure that the public can understand it. And a one in 10,000 year flood 
What does that mean? <laughs> well, 100-year flood, what does that mean? So how would you explain that? Uh, well, it's a difficult concept for most people to figure out what that means. So let me give you an idea of what that would mean, what you might explain. Well, if the probability of a flood is 1% for any given year, the probability of not having a flood is the inverse, is 99%. 99% you don't get a flood. Probably no flood in two years is twice the number, number is 98%. Probably if no flood in 30 consecutive years, so 30 years in a row having no floods, is just simple mathematics, would be 0.99 to the power 30 is 0.74. Now, probably you have uh, the inverse of this, the inverse of having no flood is to have one or more floods. So the probability of one or more floods in 30 years is then one minus this thing is 20.6, 26%. So stating this, that you live in a 1% area, is the same thing as stating if you buy a home in a 1% flood area, the probability that it will be flooded once or more before the mortgage is paid off is 26%. To me, this is a talk that more people understand. Another thing is that probabilities, even if you explain it right, they only explain half the story. Because you say, okay, so the probability that a flood will occur is 1% a year or 26% within 30 years. But then, what does that mean that a flood occurs? Okay. You also need, need to know how bad this flood is. Right? You can say for any body of water, you can say the probability that the water level will be you know, a, a storm-like that happens every 100 years will be certain things. But if that flood isn't very bad, because if you live on a small lake, then so what? The grass gets, gets wet. If you live on the Dutch coast, then that's a major thing. If you live in the Gulf with hurricanes, the 1% flood is tremendous. What we try to do is not, say, not just say how much, how often it occurs, this opposite flood, but actually what happens if it occurs. So we talk about risk. Risk is a probability that occurs times the damage if it occurs, and that's the expected cost in dollars. And dollars is far more conceptually easy than, than probabilities. So risk is the expected, dollars, expected cost in dollars over a certain period. Now you can take this total uh, expected cost in dollars in a certain region and then divide it by the number of people in the region, and you get it per person, or by the number of households, homes in the region, and you get a statement like this. If you buy a home in a 1% flood area, the flood risk per person or per home over the course of 30 years dollars is so many dollars. So this would be the expense to you as a homeowner. Not just the probability that we'll get a flood, but no, this is what it's going to cost you. So how much would you then be willing to pay for preventing it? Well, maybe close to that amount, right? If that's the average damage over the course of a 30-year mortgage, how much are you willing to pay for it? Well, it seems like something that becomes like a dialogue that is reasonable. Right? So my prediction is that there's better understanding in terms of these things. What's going to cost you to have this flood risk over your 30-year mortgage will also increase the willingness to pay. And here's the damage. Uh, in millions of euros per hectare. Then how do we get this, this, this number, one in 10,000, or one in 4,000, or one in who knows 1,000, right? Well, it's an issue of economics. It's fairly straightforward, actually. It's the marginal benefit and marginal cost of protection. Marginal benefit is protection. is the extra benefit you get from having a little more protection. The marginal cost is the marginal cost of providing extra protection. Nothing is free. This red line is the marginal cost of extra prote protection, and it tells you how much in dollars it will cost you to get better and better protected. So these are the protection levels in terms of uh, flood chances. So this is 0 0.1, 0 0.01, 100-year flood. 
and this is the 10,000 you found. So how long is here and this is here. Right? So these are protection levels. Now, as you add better protection, you have to raise the dikes more and more and more, and it becomes costlier. So the marginal cost goes up. It becomes more and more expensive to make the additional cost, to make the additional protection. Right? So as you, as you want to have dike at, say, 100 meters high, which is ridiculous, it would be very expensive. Okay, that's the idea. So this thing slopes upwards. Now, this is the marginal benefit. It slopes down. It is the benefit of extra protection. Well, if you have no dike at all, then, well, <laughs> first meat is great because you're not always in the water. So that's really great. As you get something like the one in a hundred, you say, well, the additional protection becomes less and less valuable because you're already so well protected. Right? If the chances of you're getting hit by a storm is so low that it's one in 10,000, then, well, having it even more protected, that's not like it's actually going to get people really excited. Well, at the intersection of those things, the marginal cost and marginal benefits are the same. And to calculate these things is enormously difficult, but this is how we go about it. We say, well, at the beginning, it is a very good idea. At the beginning, the benefit, at the beginning, the benefit of building a dike is very high, the cost is very low. And as you keep going, the costs rise of having extra protection, the benefits fall. And so you get, uh, that's how you get to some optimal level. But once you have this risk at an optimal level, there is only some residual risk. Here, because this intersection between these two lines will never be here. <coughs> right? It will always be somewhere where there's somebody which you'll never get, you'll never be optimal from an economic point of view to have perfect guarantee. Perfect guarantee would be a 100 meter dike. You're never going to do that. Okay? So there will be some residual risk. And that's an issue of economics also. Who should ensure that? Who should bear the additional risk? And here, economics will tell you that in this point, there's a government to be involved. We have here a bunch of houses that are valuable, but they're all the same. If there is a flood, they all get wiped out. That's not very good for insurance, because an insurance company either has to not pay out anything, which is every 100 years or every 10,000 years, and then if there's a flood, boom, all these houses are gone, and has to pay out an enormous amount. No private company could possibly do that. No private company could pay out the wealth of the red area in Holland every 10,000 years. So then the government can do it. It's only company, so to speak, only organization that has the capacity to pay, the capacity to borrow, and from issue of solidarity, want to do it as well. Well, then this cost-benefit analysis, there are several types of benefits. Direct benefits, and those are most easily understood. Those are the benefits of prevention of damage. You build the dike, no damage. But also indirect benefits, Benefits are not directly related to the damage, but to the, has, to, has to do with the economy, economic growth, or economic recovery, or economic expansion. And then the non-monetary benefits. The non-monetary benefits are simply like, simply like the ecosystem or lives, human lives. Well, the problem is, how do, you, how do you value this? You want to have a cost-benefit with all the costs and all the benefits, so you don't want to ignore them. Human life is, is valuable. How valuable is that? Well, I won't answer the question, but it is an issue in this top of analysis. Ecosystem, indirect benefits, how, be how valuable is that? Again, I won't answer the question. So lots of research is being directed towards the second and the third part to try to get a common denominator, dollars or euros, or a sense at least of how you got them, 
so the public understands what kind of assumptions you made in getting these calculations. I also make sure that there is support. Because if you ignore the ecosystem, you've got a green lobby. If you ignore human lives, well, you get me on track. <laughs> okay? So the, that's the research agenda in terms of cost benefit analysis. And the ultimate goal is to have uniformly applied guidelines, something like accounting. In accounting, we know what counts and what doesn't count. If you have an accounting firm for a firm, that's, uh, those are uniform guidelines. Now, to give you an example of direct and indirect cost and benefits, I'll go through an actual cost-benefit analysis of the same as Delta American. At the Delta American, we're actually a series of projects where all these red things were being built, and they were originally planned to be built as dikes. And they were meant to be built piece by piece, not all at once, but first do one, learn from it, build another one, learn from it, build one, learn from it. And uh, two cost-benefit analyses were made of it. One in 1961 by Tinbergen himself, director, Nobel laureate, first director of CBB. And one in 2003 afterwards by Don Stolberg, and Don was the director of CBB at that time. So we have two directors of CBB doing these cost-benefit analyses. One before, saying what we think is going to happen, what we think are the costs and benefits of this project. And one after saying what happened to the costs and benefits and were we right. This exposed analysis after the fact is actually a very important tool for learning to figure out whether you are right. So we look at some of the similarities and differences and see what we learned. We will be shocked. At least I was shocked. First of all, there was one similarity. Both are positive. It was a good idea. I thought it was a good idea, and it turned out to be a good idea. So the benefits are great and the cost. And Tinbergen's estimates originally were correct as such. That is, its original design had been built. But remember, this was a piece-by-piece piece project. So as time goes on, things happen. And things may change. And it took, until the last piece over here, took 34 years to complete the whole thing. And over 34 years, a lot happened. So what happened, and how did that work? How did it affect it? Well, looking at the number, the total cost turned out to be higher than Tinberger thought by a factor of six. When we look at what caused it, it was caused by one thing, this thing. All the other things were right. This one thing made the, the cost overrun of 600%. And it is an overscale locating. It is a, is a dam or dam barriers in between pillars. And these things can go up and down. And under normal circumstances, they're all up. And there's no barrier at all. And the water flows out and out just as if there were no dam. If there's, if there's damage of, uh, if there's a fear of, of a flood, the thing goes down and it's a solid barrier and nothing will go through it. Why did we do this instead of building a dam? These are major sea arms. The picture before, these were major sea arms here connected to the ocean with water, seawater flowing inside out. In a rather unique area, this is a very long piece of, land, of sea in between areas. So there was a very unique ecosystem. And at Tinbergen's time, nobody knew and nobody cared. But as environmental concerns became a national concern, international concern, a worldwide concern, people started caring. They said, we can't do that. That's a piece in the CBA, the cost benefit analysis, that's a cost that should be counted. Then they decided to build this thing. Under normal circumstances, no damn at all. Natural ecosystem can be maintained. If there's a flood, a barrier. That thing was expensive. And we think it was worth the cost. On the benefit side, well, it had also had to be, of course, that the benefits were higher by a factor of six. So 600% overrun, so to speak, on the benefits. Otherwise, we would have said 
in hindsight, it was a bad idea. How that happened? Well, this was indirect effects, the indirect effects of the, the dam, the diet, on the economic development of the region. Some, a lot of things can happen when you do something like this. It's a major construction area, a major thing, a major new road, or a major anything can do major things. What happened here is that this was a road, and this road, what did it do? It connected this piece, large piece of land, and all these others, to Rotterdam. And instead of, instead of boom, 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 right? And especially this area was a big area, you'd have to go all the way around. It cut the, it cut the economic distance, so to speak, the distance in terms of economic costs, enormously. The area that I just pointed out to, which had been an agricultural area with almost no industry, and a declining GDP, and people leaving it, turned into an area that, after this thing was built, had a higher than average growth rate, had a growing population, and had industry flourishing. It became the new Holland. That's an indirect benefit. It should be counted in your CBA as a benefit. And it was, after the fact. And so it became out positive again. Both columns were increased by a factor of six, 600%. So what did we learn from this? We learned two things, as far as I'm concerned. Tim Bergen, who did the first one, did the best possible job at the time. Going back to the original design, the original assumption, he was on target. So all, at the time, he gave decision makers the optimal information with the costs and the benefits. And he was transparent about it. He told the people what was included, what was not included. And the decision was made. It is not a fortune teller. You make decisions at a certain time, you make the best possible decisions based on the CBA, transparent research, openly. And things can be different. They can turn out to be good or bad. But that's life. So. These numbers are not fixed, but they were the best you could do. Now, there are some alternative measures that you could do instead of a dike. A single dike may not always be optimal. You'll find that here in this area, maybe two. So I want to look at some alternatives measures that we currently have been looking at. This is a map that is hanging in the office of Fugro, uh, and it shows Holland bef no, way back when. This was an open area, open to the sea, because these are the islands and water would flow. So this was a sea area the Zuiderzee and Sea area. Right? When there was a surge, the water would go through here and funnel in here, and the surge would be all around here, and it would flood. So this area would be very flood prone, and we have Amsterdam here, and that was not good. Uh, when there was a huge flood, the government decided to have a system of two dikes. One was this dike, it's called the offside dike, it's a closure dike, a dike that simply closes off this whole thing so it becomes a lake uh, with a way for ships to go through. But a lake, otherwise. And then inner dikes. So a system of two dikes. And this would protect the local area from the, from the water, and this would be cutting off the, uh, the sea. And how does it work? This is a normal situation. This is a situation before we built those two dikes. We have here the open sea. We have here the inner area. So we're at Iselmere now, or the lake. And here we have land. Okay. Under normal circumstances, they're all about the same level. This area of Holland is below sea level, so the land and the sea are about the same level under normal circumstances. If there's a surge, let's say a surge that brings the water up to as high as the dike. Now, if this has been, had been the only dike, the water would have gone all the way up to here. But it only gets that far in the first dike. The water gets up to this dike and is stopped by this dike. Can it go, well, if it goes over, it goes over, of course, but let's assume it just stays. This is an enclosed piece of water no water gets added to it, it will slant because of the wind, so it will be at an angle. There's a huge body of water. The upside dike by itself, that piece is 20 miles, 
So this thing is really huge. This is a huge piece of water. And so there will be a slant, which means that this thing will be a lot higher than that. And the weight of this water on this side will pull the water back out. So there will be a limit, a natural limit to how high this can get. So this dike will be enforced by this dike because uh, uh, there will be no surge coming into the ocean to here. If the dike had been there, all this water would have come over and this white area would have been filled with water. Instead, this white area here, above the blue area, remains air, basically, because the water cannot go through. This is the design and uh, recent research now figures out how to optimize it. What should be the relative strength of these two dikes? And it turns out that this dike should be, can be much lesser level of protection than this dike. Current safety stands in Holland have both dikes being equally strong. Those are the legal prescriptions, equally strong. Now recent research said there's no need for that. This can be much less strong, saving a lot of dollars. So here you see a research on this type of hydraulic system economics together, trying to save a lot of money. Another thing is probably possible for you, interesting for you, is, is how do you do with the riverine area? Well, this is a river and it's overflowing uh, because the water can't go anywhere. It's coming from, the, from, from Germany. And uh, here we look at solutions. And here the optimal solution turns out to be not to have two dikes or to have one dike, so the dike that is high up, but to move the dikes farther apart. To give up some land around the river to make room for the river, so to speak. And finally, uh, a third thing is, well, if there's a flood, can we protect the area? So the three layers of defense, protection, spatial planning, try to make people move in areas that are not as dangerous and prepare for emergency evacuation. The research goes into, can we actually evacuate all of them? And so far, the answer seems to be, no, we can't. What well, is the way forward from here? Well, to summarize, threat prevention has a technological and economic side. Climate change makes it a common international issue. A lot of these things are related for the future in Holland are related to climate change. We are safe as it is, but climate change will change that. So we have climate change as an international issue. We have, in every country, a technology and an economic side. So then, let's cooperate. That's the basic message, and that's what we're trying to do in Holland. The cooperation between the Dutch and uh, the Americans in water management extends back centuries, or not centuries, decades. But it really, really, really took off after Katrina. So there was a lot of technical exchange between the Corps of Engineers and their counterparts in the Netherlands, called Rijkswaterstaat. They had an MOA formalized in 2004, just in time for Katrina in 2005, and that MOA has really taken off and structured some good exchange between the Dutch Rijkswaterstaat and the Army Corps of Engineers. But it goes beyond that. It's, um, it's not just flood protection. Um, it deals with uh, resiliency of your cities. It looks at sea level rise and climate change. It looks at various components. You know, Florida has a different water challenge than, than the Gulf Coast uh, in Texas and Louisiana. They have a different water challenge than California. Uh, the, the Mississippi River has a different component of water challenge than does uh, Pittsburgh, where I'm from. So this interaction between the Dutch and American is growing. And we hope there's some exchange that could come out of from what's happening here. Because here you have a, an area of tremendous uh, military importance, economic importance, um, key sea facilities, logistics facilities, um, similar to the Netherlands in some ways. And so there could be some really smart things happening here that the Dutch can learn from, and maybe there's some things that the Dutch can share with you. So Frey already talked about this. Um, what, so 6% of the 
people, but 70% of Dutch GDP is produced in those really unsafe areas. That means people are, are worried about it, but they're, they're happy to invest there. Americans have choose the Netherlands, this part of the Netherlands is the number one place to put their money, um, and they do that because they feel safe. This is a cross-section, Frey showed you, here's the Netherlands, if it's not protected, it looks Water, it looks watery. People, the Dutch people have to live in Germany. This is one difference. This is a cross section of the Dutch landscape. Strong coastal dune that provides some of the protection. You don't have this. You have this in California, but you don't have this really anywhere else in the U.S. Because the land behind the coastal dune or the coastal structure in the U.S. generally goes up and here it goes down. You're in trouble if it floods. So they did, this is this 40 year project, the Delta Works, uh, $40 billion of investment, so a lot of money. This is the last barrier. Um, this, this, uh, the width of this channel is about a mile, and everyone felt safe. Uh, the Mossland barrier was put in place in 1997. Everyone's feeling good. 1993 and 1995, two major river floods, two 300-year uh, floods, I think they were, occurred in a three-year period. How is that possible? Well, Freddie told you it's probability. But the Dutch began to realize, oh, there's climate change coming. We're getting more floods. The river's constricted upstream, so it's coming down faster, it's getting here, the Dutch subsiding landscape, it's not safe anymore, it's not sustainable, so what do you do with that? And a number of things have occurred over the years with Dutch change, the Dutch uh, policies have changed away from flood resistance, the title of my presentation, to flood accommodation. So you see the Netherlands welcoming more water into the landscape in some places to increase safety, which is counterintuitive, but we'll show you how this works. Okay, so the sea level's rising. Uh, more extreme storms. This is predicted for climate change. We're having one right here. Increased erosion, so this is going to, the, the dunes are at risk. Um, river discharge, so it rains upstream or it snows in the Alps and it comes down the river faster. Uh, more intense rainfall, more storm water. We're having a year right out there. The drought, Frey talked about. Yeah, climate predictions or the predictions for climate change means that you're going to get drier summers and wetter winters. So more rain, more water in the fall and winter, more drought in the summer. Last year I was in the Netherlands with a team of Americans and the Dutch water boards were out there spraying their levees, their dikes, with water. Why are they doing that? If you don't spray the levees, they desiccate and dry out and they weak. The last major uh, levee failure in the Netherlands occurred in 2003 and it was because uh, a levee that was dry shifted. Thankfully they had time to repair it. So droughts impact your flood protection system too. And this is, this is a new phenomenon. How do the Dutch, who are used to this, well not this, but a lot of rain, how do they deal with drought? So they have to. Salinity, salinity intrusion, you have it here in the, in the bay, perhaps. Um, uh, you have it in, in Texas and in Florida. If you push salt water back into your delta and your freshwater intake pumps are by that delta, you've just screwed up your drinking water system. You've screwed up this very productive landscape. A lot of agriculture in this area. So you have to deal with it. So, the delta is under pressure. Oh yeah, it's subsiding, increasing your risk. And then how do you live in this area? Third most densely populated country in the world. How do you live and occupy this area and attract investment and educate good people and live safely? So this is a challenge. The Delta Commission is gonna to try to deal with these challenges. One of the policies that I wanna talk about here is the Room for the River program. This was an idea a long time ago in the mid 80s that they needed to increase the, fl the floodplain to allow the river to do what it wants to do. Rivers naturally flood and contract and flood and contract. That's what they do over time. Humans come along, they constrict the floodplain, 
raises the water level, and then if a flood happens, more people are at risk. The Rhine River has a design discharge, river, a di design discharge uh, level when it comes to the Netherlands right now about uh, 13 to 14,000 cubic meters a second. Climate change means you're going to have to increase that discharge capacity of the river up to probably, they thought, 15 or 16,000 cubic meters a second. But recent science has no, they probably need to increase it up to 18 or 20. So that's tripling, or sorry, a 33% increase of the design discharge capacity of this river, which is highly constricted, and a lot of people live around it. How do you deal with this? CPB did a good study of this. Um, if you heighten your dikes and reinforce the dikes, it's not only costly, but it's a lot of money, but you increase your risk because when a, a catastrophe occurs, you have much more damage occurring because people are now living more closely behind that dike. So the Room for the River program more broadly is sort of you restore the floodplain, let the floodplain do what it wants to do, what it naturally wants to do when possible, and you heighten your, your dikes and your levees only as the last resort. You can't let Amsterdam or you can't let Dordrecht or some of these river cities, you can't let those, those cities just not raise their protection level when needed. But wherever possible, and in this river plain, there's room, you let the, room, you let the river do what it wants to do. $3 billion project, it's underway. It took from 1996 to 2001 to get the Dutch government to agree to implement the policy. And then from 2001 and 2006, there was a planning phase. So a lot of stakeholder involvement. And now they're in the implementation phase, to implementation phase 2009 to 2015. Projects are on schedule. Most of them are on budget, I think, as I understand it. And um, again, it's being implemented as we speak. And an important component of this, and I think it's important for Americans to know, so it's not only room for the river has equal goals, flood risk reduction, obviously, but improving the spatial quality of the region. So try to combine those two functions. So if you have a project in, in an urban area, you try to make the area more attractive, maybe a little, put more biodiversity in there, maybe do things with bikes and parks. And so you get your flood protection, but you improve the spatial quality of the region. And it's underway, and here's, these are the projects. Most of them are upstream because they have downstream impacts with the red dot to the projects. I'm going to talk about a couple of them very briefly. This project is uh, just underway, probably three or four months ago. The design is done. This is the Nordwall Florida Beach Wash, uh, Project. Um, it's in this region. River's coming through. Rotterdam sits down where I was pointing. Um, there's some other cities nearby that are in danger. This is what it looks like. It's a farming area, very rich and productive. Reclaimed from the river in the 1800s, I think. Is that right? 1800s? Not many people living there. Frey mentioned the city of Dordrecht, which is right here. About 120, 130,000 people. Kordenkum is right here. I think that's smaller, 50 or 80,000 people. Little city of Rekendam. This here floods up into the backside of Rotterdam. When the water's coming from the German, from Germany, and it's flowing down this river, it can back up. This is a natural park down here. This is the Bischbosch. is a sort of a wetland Everglades type area. There's a couple freshwater reservoirs in here for the city of Rotterdam and the city of Dordrecht. So this is drinking water. And if you don't solve this problem, these people are going to get flooded. So what they've done, pretty simple project. They're, they're notching the levees up here. They're building some culverts under the road infrastructures here. And as the water levels rise to a certain area, this design, the water's going to flow through this area. So pretty much it's a, it's a diversion. They have this in California, but this is pretty neat. How are they going to do this? So here's, you know, low water area, low water levels. This is um, average high water. So this is going to occur, mm, this kind of situation, probably once, maybe three times a year. 
this year is one time a year, so this is what it's going to look like once a year. They move people out of this area, or they've told people you can stay and understand your risk, and we'll help you elevate your homes if you want to stay, but understand your risk if we get out of here. And this is going to happen, uh, I don't know, this is once every 10 years, I guess. And so this is, I think, a 30 or 25 year event. That's three and a half feet above the, the, the normal Amsterdam level of water, which is the, that's, the Netherlands measures this water level by something called the NAP. Okay. And that's this pole in the water in the Amsterdam. Sure. So this is three and a half meters above that level. This is the little town. This is a historic cultural asset, that little fort over here. The water area, the freshwater supply is protected. Um, but there's a little, I guess they're assuming this guy's going to stay. But this situation, you don't know how long you're going to live there. I mean, you don't know how long this high water is going to be. If it's, this is a two-day situation, this is a 10-day situation. Another area, this is very typical. This is a very typical room for the river program. Water channel coming through here, farming polder, um, going to raise the uh, raise the houses. People want to stay there, give them some protection. Lower the, the dike along the river so you have a broader channel. Hit floods, and then you can really have water. You flood this area, it's a storing area. You're protecting people downstream. And another typical project of room for the river in the Netherlands is this Nijmegen project, and we were talking about this on the way down. Water coming from Germany, a lot of rivers, a lot of channels. This here is a city, I'm trying to touch the screen, this here is a city of Nijmegen. 250,000, people in the city, a lot of people. Um, you look at the river channel, the river channel goes from about a mile wide to about a third of a mile wide. Tremendous constriction of the water. You get a bunch of water coming down through here and you can't divert it up this way, the city of Nijmegen is in danger. Um, there is some land available up here that you can uh, do this. The city has also, over a long time, thought that they wanted to develop a northern part of this. You see this little peninsula coming down, whatever this land channel comes on. Trying to, they want to develop that but didn't know how. So you have two options here, two general options were selected. One typical river bypass up here taking some land out of commerce, taking some farmland and saying, okay, this may flood once every three years or five years. You have to claim this land and compensate people. Or you could widen the river channel here by setting back this dike and doing something with it. This is the least costly option. But the city chose, and the stakeholders chose to do something different. They chose to set back the dike. You can see the dike being set back here. Um, Project's underway, creating a different water channel here so the water can flow into it, so you have a little more space for the water. Um, the dike is set back, so the channel's not so constricted. Put some more infrastructure in, and develop this piece of land here as waterfront property. Who would want to live there? You're living right in the middle of this river. The city thinks if you raise the, the house, the, the land level enough, enough on this little channel, you're still pretty close. You can put some bridges there, some, some pedestrian bridges that people will want to live there. And the goal um, is here is you have this situation turning into this situation. The city loves this idea because there's new things they can do with mixed use development and retail and tax revenues that all cities like to have new waterfront. So the Dutch uh, engineering firms and, and uh, design firms love this idea. How can we show the people in Singapore and the people in Dubai that they can live safely and we can sell our products. So the, the, the engineering firms like this. There's some ecosystem benefits to this um, thing. So they chose this uh, this project and it's underway. Now what I heard is you know, the schematic of it. What I heard on the way down is that when they set back this dike and they put the new the new the new dike structure in, 
it's not as strong as they thought it was. So there's no water on it, but it's not as strong as, is that what you're telling me? And so here's a different way of living with water. So here you see people bringing water more into the environment, into the natural, returning the system back to its natural way to create more resilience. This is the, this is the concept, I'll show you this later. This is the living with water image that you need to go home with. So this is, if I'm giving you one thing, this is the Dutch living with water policy. Retain the water in the urban area, where it falls, if you can. So design things from little cisterns at your downspout to little uh, places of parks where you can store the water for two hours or 10 hours. Um, store it where you can, either in small areas or big areas, and finally drain it. You reduce your carbon footprint because you're, um, you're not pumping so much water. In New Orleans, I'm going to show you a project in New Orleans. We, we estimate that we can probably save the city 40% of its carbon output because uh, a lot of energy used for pumping. This is one more little project on a smaller scale living with water. It's called the Tide Project. This is completed in 2010. This is up in Dordrecht. So here's that river channel coming by. Old parkland area. Old, sorry, old parkland area. You can see the flood protection levee around it. Um, and some water through here. This area, they needed space, right? The Netherlands is very dense. What do you do with it? Well, they've connected this area the water area back into here, putting houses in here, and now they've connected this area here. So this whole area now in green can flood if necessary. So you've increased a tremendous amount of water storage capacity, and you've built some pretty attractive places to live. And here you can see the various water levels. So here you can see the design of this. What does it look like? Here's the, the levee. People were living in, so outside the protective system on the water. This is these are the back of the houses. Not kind of a bad place to live. We can all wonder why Dutch architects like these straight lines, but that's a different thing, um, <laughs> right? And uh, you can live on the water. So this is a parkland area, so soccer fields. It's now much more resilient, gives people a lot of access to the water. Um, the initial offering for one of these houses, I think, was 300,000 euros, was the initial offering price. The final house sold at about 900,000 euros, 100 houses. So there's some value in doing this. Quickly, what we're doing in New Orleans, because um, this is urban water, and I understand you have problems with urban water management in, in Norfolk. Um, so, as I mentioned before, the Netherlands um, and some really smart people in New Orleans have been working together to make New Orleans safer. Um, it looks a lot, again, it's a bowl subsiding. Here's what the area of the city that was flooded. So most of the city of New Orleans was flooded after Katrina. A lot of it fairly deep, eight, 10 feet deep. And you see the old part of the city that wasn't flooded is, is along the river. The river. Um, we're not talking about this. Here's the flood protection system that the Army Corps spent $15 billion on after Katrina to protect the city. So it's all, that's the perimeter protection. And the Corps is walking away because they're done. But you still have a problem with those urban floods, right? Those, like here, you get a whole bunch of rain, coming down on a regular basis, you get 10-year floods which overwhelm the city. So we're struggling with that with this Dutch uh, American water management team. We've concluded a number of things about New Orleans. They've excluded the water from the urban environment. Really, this is the, one of those outfall canals. This is a flood wall that holds that water back when it gets so high. But you can't see the water in New Orleans. New Orleans is a water city without any visible water. And that's a problem. New Orleans has regular nuisance flooding. This area is eight feet above sea level, and you get this occurring three, two or three times a year. So what does this do? It's a nuisance. This is water storage in the street. Well, it's flooding cars, so there's repetitive loss for, 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 for automobile industry or for auto insurances. These businesses have to deal with it. It's not good. And because the way they manage the 
water in the city of New Orleans by pumping it out as quickly as they can. They're lowering the groundwater level. By lowering the groundwater level, you're increasing your subsidence rate. And when you increase your subsidence rate, you get this kind of infrastructure. You get a crumbling infrastructure, which is costly to maintain or unsightly. So we're trying to help them struggle with that. And our water management strategy has a number of things. We're assessing the physical environment, the current and anticipated. We're assessing the existing infrastructure. We're developing water assignments, and I'll talk about that. We're developing a toolbox, so how you can deal with these uh, small-scale, big-scale kind of projects, and we're identifying pilots. This is a project that's being funded through a, through a HUD um, hazard mitigation grant, and they awarded it to this Dutch-American team. This is what we're looking at, a lot of rainfall, problems with groundwater, river water, and sea level rise. We're looking at elevation, so what, are, what is the natural elevation of landscape? Fugro does an amazing job here. I don't want to plug my buddy, but Fugro is probably the best firm in the United States. It deals with looking at LIDAR kind of things and, uh, and understanding what the elevations of the land is over time. So um, I don't know if you have them in the backyard. We're looking at the soil types. This tells you what you can do, how much weight you can put on the soil. And I didn't know until about three months ago that muck is a technical term. I didn't know that, but it is. Um, we're looking at the, the, the organic uh, content soil, which is going to tell you what's going to subside even more in the future. We're looking at the current drainage system. Open is in blue and red's under underground. You can see this is New Orleans proper as we know it. It's all underground except those ugly outfall canals. We're looking at where it floods, where it's subsiding, implementing uh, retained store drain where we can. This is a crucial component of water strategy. Where can we store water in this environment for the 10-year flood, for the 20-year flood, for the 30-year flood, for the 50-year flood? Where can we store it in that environment so that you don't get this other problem? Nuisance flooding. And also, if you mitigate nuisance flooding, you, your system is more resilient to the hurricane that comes along once every 30 years. You can store more water in this. So we're assigning water to various sub-basins. Um, this is a technical process going on right now with the Dutch uh, CDM and with Fasconi. We're looking at the groundwater levels. This is tricky because right now this is how New Orleans manages the groundwater level. Here's the, soil, the surface level. Groundwater is down. It's increasing your subsidence. So we're going to propose you increase the groundwater level, raise the groundwater level. It's going to allow the system to work a little bit better, but that just increases your water assignment. So the idea of raising the groundwater level, which is smart from a technical subsidence management problem, increases your water assignment. We're struggling with that. It's okay, it's a struggle, it's a good thing to do. There is, however, the green parts is where there is space for water. A lot of people left New Orleans, didn't come back. The city and the state own a lot of properties. There is space to put this water. This is our framework. This is the design that you know, we have in the office, but we can look at this. What do we mean? Where are we putting water? These are Dutch highways. You put water alongside of it. You build, when you build your project, a highway project, you build water storage components into it so that you can flood this area with water when you need it. Up in Jefferson Parish near the airport, this is all concrete. We're telling people when you redesign an area, they're redeveloping this area, put some of these little grassy, pebbly things in it, and it'll hold water for a time. Infiltrate sidewalks. Typical drainage canal up in Jefferson Parish in uh, western New Orleans. Pretty ugly thing. Who would want to live next to this? It serves one purpose, and that's to hold water. Why not, as you build a city out, you redevelop the city, why don't you do something for amenity and flood it when you need to? So now you've increased the water storage capacity of that canal by about fourfold. French Quarter is here. Bayou St. John's coming back here. This is the old entrance, historic entrance of the city. This is called the Lafitte Corridor. City-owned. They're ready to do something with it. 
because it looks like this. This is an opportunity, and we want to make it look like this. The bike path, the city's going to return it into a park. They already, they already determined this, but we're saying, while you're designing this, put water components into this so you can store this water. And you've actually restored the natural ingress whenever Bienville and Iberville came and discovered this city, put the city down here. Um, they came back through this to the end of the bayou and used a portage that became a canal. Um, it's what's called the Lafitte Corridor to the back of the French Quarter. So restore the identity of the city and create more water in here. I'm almost done. This is a, one of the wettest parts of the area near Dillard University over here, old abandoned, almost semi-abandoned school area. You can't do anything with this area. So the city is just stuck. Unproductive property. No, you use it for water storage. These are one of those outfall canals. Use it for water storage. It can look like this now. You have an urban amenity, some park. It's a pretty cool project. And this is likely to go ahead. And these are, this is one of the drainage canals, these outfall canals where the flood walls tipped over and flooded the surrounding environments. This is what it looks like. Um, this is waterfront property, but who would want to live there, right? I mean, this is it's not good. These green dots are the empty vacant properties that are owned by the city. So you can do things with these on a, on a small scale, plot by plot basis. Or you can use some mitigation funds and some re from relocation areas. Move people one street back, and it's not too many people have to do, and you have a, an environment like this now. So now you've re you can remove those flood walls by doing this. Now you have, so as people with their back to the water now, they're facing the water, looking, and this is now an amenity park area. And this is a much more attractive way to live. And by doing this, you're getting some, you're, you're increasing the land values, and you're increasing the, the property values, and you're increasing your, your resiliency of your city. And this is the final pilot I want to talk about. This is a 25-acre plot um, by the sisters of some, some nuns who occupied this parcel of property in 1808. It's a convent. They abandoned it after Katrina because they were just tired of the repetitive loss. And there, I think there were 80 nuns used to man the convent. They live in Baton Rouge now. They are willing to give to the city and to the water management team this parcel of land to do something with for this water management strategy. That's pretty, it's a, it's a big honor for the team. And we're now looking at what you can do with it, but what we're trying to show here is that parcel of property is that dark blue square there. By using that for water storage capacity, you're taking pressure off the drainage system for this entire area. Not so much here, but look at this. You're, you're increasing the resilience of the area. The flood storage capacity of the region is being tremendously increased by that little 25-acre plot. And there are more of those in, in and around New Orleans. So we're identifying some of those pilots. And this is, in essence, what we're trying to do. All this blue area is new things we're proposing in the water strategy. You don't need to implement this next year. The city's going to redevelop over the next 30 or 40 years. Do these things incrementally. Identify your loan hanging group and move forward with it. And you'll make the city more resilient. The lessons we're learning there, New Orleans is the first city in the United States that's doing a work on urban water management strategy. And the Dutch American team thinks this is important, so much so that Galveston and Tampa and other folks are sort of watching what, what the team is doing to say maybe we should adopt one of these strategies too and see how to do that. So it's pretty cool.